0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. If you hadn't noticed, award season is upon us. And I just wanted to take a moment to give a big shout out to both Spring Awakening and Daddy Longlegs for their outer critics noms. Daddy Longlegs, we're super proud of it, got nominated for best score and best book amongst the big Broadway shows. So if you haven't seen Daddy Longlegs yet, do go down to my theater and check it out. Now, on with the podcast.
1: I want to be a producer
0: with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be... Hello, everyone. This is the Producers Perspective podcast. So a little story before we get started. I was in Florida on a golf course recently, and I asked the person I was playing with if they had ever seen a Broadway show. I had, I'd never met them before this day. And they said, oh, sure, I saw a Broadway show. I saw Wicked at the Broward Center in Fort Lauderdale just a few weeks ago. So I came close to correcting him, about to say, like, oh, it's not Broadway because it's was at the Broward Center, not in New York. And then, of course, I didn't because the truth is, Broadway isn't just in Times Square anymore. It's all over America. And today's guest is responsible for booking those Broadway shows at places like the Broward Center or the Wang Center or that big performing arts center near you. Welcome to the podcast, the president of the booking group, Meredith Blair. Welcome, Meredith. Hello. So the booking group is one of the big three, maybe four, uh, most powerful booking groups in our industry. Currently, they're booking the national tours of Book of Mormon, American in Paris, Fun Home, Bridges of Madison County, Motown, Bodyguard, Something Rotten, and yes, Hamilton. Never heard of it. Uh, (laughs) As well as a bunch more shows. Uh, Previously, they booked, oh, well, let's start with this question,
1: Meredith. How many national tours in your career have you booked? Oh, my God, I wish you'd asked me this before we started. I could have counted them. I have no idea. Let's see, we've been doing this. The booking group has been here since 1996. So we're 20 years old. Um, whew, so figure 20 shows a year for 20 years. Wow,
0: 400 shows. About.
1: Oh, my God, I always, now I'm going to faint. <laughs> but, yeah, probably, give or take. Okay, so uh, next question
0: is, I want you to imagine you're in a bar in... Well, I don't know. What's the no smallest? One,
1: no one that's listening to this could ever imagine being a bar. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> What's the smallest city in the country that you've booked a show in? Imagine, I know, like... Are you talking about the equity tours? or the Any nine? city. Just give me a, one of those small little, like a Harlingen, Texas. Harlingen, Texas. There's one. Uh, now, that, that's what our non-equity department would have booked in. Uh, so uh, me personally or my office? Your office. I, I'm guessing, there you go. That sounds
0: like a good one. Harlingen, Texas. I played there with the national tour of A Grand Night for singing myself. Uh-huh. So imagine you're at a bar uh-huh. in Harlingen, Texas. Uh-huh. Obviously, they don't get a lot of theater there. Uh-huh. And some guy saddles up next to you and says, Hey, darling, what do you do for a living?
1: Uh-huh. How would you answer that question to someone who doesn't know the theater? I would say I book the national tours of Broadway shows. And oftentimes when I say that to people who aren't in the business, they think that that means that I book tickets. Um, People who come across our website sometimes think that we book tickets. So there is a little bit of a, what does that mean, you book the national tour? So I have to explain that we take the shows, shows that have opened in New York, and we program them across the country. Oftentimes they'll think that means they literally take the show out of Broadway and uh, and uh, put it across the road. And we have to explain that, no, we actually replicate other companies. And, and so, yes, we kind of map out its course, and we we decide which cities we're going to play and when and which theaters we're going to play and for how long. And we negotiate the deals with the local presenter for how much they're going to pay for the show or what the deal might be. Um, and that's what we do. We kind of chart the course for um, any number of shows and, and where they're going to play throughout North America.
0: I've never thought about that that booking, Mm -hmm. potential uh, word problem there. But in in England, book tickets. That's what they say, right? Yeah, Interesting. So how did you get started booking?
1: Uh, What was your career path? Well, I actually started, I was an actress many moons ago, but um, I started uh, with a little company called the Pace Theatrical Group with Miles Wilkin um, uh, back when it was just just getting started. Um, And I started out as the receptionist for the Pace Theatrical Group, and I, as Brian Becker will tell you, I was a terrible receptionist. So uh, they had to find something else for me to do. Um, at the time, we we were in Houston, and Sugar Babies was coming to town. This is I think that at the time the big shows were The King and I with Will Brenner, Annie, chorus line, and Sugar Babies with Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller. Anyway, they had just started a Broadway series in Houston, the Pace Theatrical Group. They were just starting out and sugar babies was coming to town and somebody had to advance the show and i had a background in theater miles threw the rider on my desk and said figure it out well since i wasn't very good at being a receptionist <laughs> i i somehow figured out how to advance the show and he said well you know what you don't have no business answering the phones however you do possibly have a career in uh working with these tours as they're coming to town and then you know facilitating them which i did so i, I worked uh with Miles for five years, moved to New York and um, helped him open the New York office for Pace Theatrical. And then I left for eight years and went to work for Frank Sinatra. Um, and I booked Frank Sinatra and Steve Lawrence Needy Gourmet and, and Liza Minnelli. I booked the Rat Pack tour. Um, so I was gone for eight years. And then Sinatra was getting ready to retire and I missed Broadway and I came back to New York. And uh, well, long story short, there was. The booking group is an amalgamation. Is that the word I'm looking for? Whatever. It, it's a merger. That's what it is. <laughs> That's the word. It's a merger. Uh, it, there was a company called the Touring Artist Group that was run by Michelle Vega. And there was uh, the booking office, which was run by Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller. And uh, I came back to New York uh, just about the time that Rent was opening. And uh, Jeffrey called me. I, I, I made a deal with uh, with Michelle. Vega, and I was going to go in and, and work at, at the Touring Artists Group. At the same time, uh, Rent hit, and Jeffrey Seller called me and said, we've got this big show opening. We don't want to be booking agents anymore. Can you come over and run our agency? And I said, I can I'm already got, I'm working with Michelle. And so then I got this bright idea. How about if we kind of all merge things, and how about if we brought uh, Pace Theatrical, which I can't remember what they were called, but by then it may have been Live Nation or uh, Clear Channel, Clear Channel or one, yeah, one of the, the entities that they were between now and then and said how about we all join forces and Miles who um, was really good at that sort of thing figured out a way for us to do exactly that and then just like the Brady Bunch we became the booking group um, and that's sort of how we got there and that was 20 years ago.
0: 20 years mm-hmm. so you've seen a lot of things in the past 20 years. I have. How has the touring industry changed in the last couple decades? What's the biggest change you've seen?
1: Hmm. I think it's almost more amazing how much it hasn't, to tell you the truth. Um, it's changed in that the road's gotten bigger. You know, in 20 years, there's been more performing arts centers have opened, more markets that used to be tertiary markets have become primary markets uh, or become multiple-week markets. So the road has really expanded. I mean, a, a tour is longer than it used to be simply because there's more markets to take it to, more viable markets to take it to. Um uh, and I suppose, I guess the other change is it's become uh, more liberal in terms of, of uh, what the road wants to see. You know, when Rent first became the hit that it was, there was a huge trepidation that, well, you could, it was a big hit. It was on the cover of, of Time magazine. It won the Pulitzer all but I'm not sure you can put that on a Broadway series subscription. Maybe you bring it into town as a special or something or as a phenomenon. But there was some apprehension about giving that show to, to subscribers, especially in the day when the big shows on the Broadway series were Sound of Music and, and you know, the r catalog, which were hugely successful, and that's what King and I, whatever, that's what people were used to seeing. So bringing in something edgy was a, a bit of a, a roll of the dice. Um, and I think what we all learned is that we everybody sort of underestimated um, the interest in, in the public out there, outside of New York, um, a their, their knowledge about what was happening in New York, and that they why wouldn't they want to see something edgy or something new or something provocative? They wanted to see it just as much as the people in New York did, and it was needless to say a huge hit. So that was a big turning point. Is I think people um, either underestimating what the road the the rest of America was willing to was willing to and wanted to see. And you mentioned
0: that a lot of it hasn't changed. What's something that really has stayed the same over the past twenty years? Oh,
1: the dynamic between the producer and the presenter. Every year we do the Spring Road <laughs> Conference, and there's always talk about some panel that's just a variation on the, the panel that we've done every year. Which is, you know, why can't we? Why can't they just see eye to eye? And then one side is always convinced that the other side is screwing them. And you know, and here we sit as the agents in the middle trying to make sure that neither one of them screw the other, um, and that it's an equitable deal for all. But there's there's this inherent mistrust between the producers and the and the presenters that I wish didn't exist because we're all kind of one big dysfunctional <laughs> sort of happy family. Um, and, and we can't one can't exist without the other. But there is there's a mistrust that's, that's that's gone on for years. And maybe that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, do you, is there, do you have any ideas on how we fix that? Is there any way to fix it?
0: I mean, you you do sit in an interesting position, and I've always thought, technically, you work for the producer. Absolutely, right? our fiduciary is to the producer. That's who we work for. However, in, you do sit in the middle and, as this mediator between yes. the two. If you had all the producers in one side of the room we're in now and all the presenters on the other side of the room, how would you get the farmer and the cow to be <laughs> friends?
1: Um no, I
0: guess I'd get them to tap dance. Um, um, hmm. or what's the biggest What's the biggest challenge that they both face or that distrust? I, I is-
1: think that neither one of them has a true understanding. And there are some, by the way, who, who, who um, ride the fence and, and do both. There are some presenters who are also producers who actually do see it from both sides. Um, but I, I think that those who don't, which is the majority that don't play on both sides... Um, don't have a true understanding of what the other one's numbers really are and, and how real they are or aren't um, or where the, the hidden money is or whether they're, wh- whatever. That's that's where the inherent mistrust comes. You know, I'm, I'm sure they're charging us too much for the guarantee. They're gouging us on it and it couldn't possibly cost that much. I'm sure that the local expenses really aren't that much and why do they need that much for facility fees? It's all going in their pockets while the royalty participants are getting screwed. I mean, there's just this this uh feeling that somehow the other side's getting one over on him and that's uh you know it hasn't changed and it's it's sort of the nature of the beast and that's that's our job as the as the agent is to kind of quell that feeling and to make sure that everybody feels like they're coming away with a fair deal
0: what makes a good tour i mean part of your job of course is to sniff out what you think is going to work on the road both for the presenters Mm -hmm. and also to advise the producers and say listen there's something here Mm -hmm. or there may not be something Mm -hmm. here when you go see a show what's on your checklist of oh this will tour well this won't tour well is
1: there a formula for what makes a great tour uh I don't know if there's a formula for it, but but one thing I will say is and we've addressed this at Spring Road conferences before is the, the the notion that oh this will be a great tour for the road which drives me crazy because it's so condescending you know a show that may not you know get critically acclaimed a uh, critical acclaim in New York or or do well at the box office but no worries it's a great show for the road like they're all stupid on the road or something or they have no taste or or, or whatever. So that's a little bit disturbing. Um, And I've almost never seen that argument hold. If it's a flop in New York, generally speaking, it's a flop on the road. Um, Except there have been a few exceptions. Um, I should maybe retract the word flop. But if it's not as successful as the producers might have hoped in New York, uh, Legally Blonde is the poster child for that. Um, Didn't get great reviews in New York. Um, um, Didn't run as long as it, it might have in New York. Although look what happened in London. I think it won the Olivier. Huge business. Great reviews in London they had a chance to reconfigure it too um, but that was a big that had a 92 week tour which is exceptionally long for a non-blockbuster show I mean we played like literally every place in North America that, that a full week tour could play um, that, and, it, and it did great business it was a hugely successful title um, which brings me to something else which you didn't ask but 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 uh, many times I'm, more often than not when a tour goes out that uh, of something that, that that was not critically well-received in New York, the producers have a, ch- a second bite at the apple. They have a chance to retool their show. And I can assure you that the tour that went out of Legally Blonde, I, I bet they wish they brought that show to New York. Same thing was true of, of Shrek. Same thing was true of the Addams Family. So a lot of these shows that were really big titles, they got a second chance to really revisit it, figure out what, what didn't go right in New York, and fix it for the road. More often than not, the the road productions were far superior to what was in New York. It's not always about the production values.
0: And what about shows that don't play Broadway? Is it possible to tour a show that doesn't play Broadway? I know you have The Bodyguard out now. Going out, yeah. Or Going Out Now what are the odds for getting a show? I come to you and I'm like, I've got a title. I really think it'll be great for the road, quote, <laughs> he says
1: condescendingly, uh, but I don't think I want to bring it into York. What's your, is it possible? I've had a lot of people ask me that recently. Um, it, 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 mm. Generally speaking, I would say the answer is no. I mean, um, these are Broadway series. By definition, they're they're booking Broadway shows. Um, there are titles. Uh, let's see, let's So there's The Bodyguard, there's uh, Dirty Dancing, there's... Um, uh, and then there's flash dance. So titles like that where there's a, a familiarity, um, there's no learning curve on, on, on what the show is. Um, and those tend to do pretty well. I mean if there's enough if, if it's a big enough title, um, those shows have, those titles have performed fairly well because again, there's no learning curve. you say flash dance, you say dirty dancing people know exactly what that is. They just haven't seen it in a musical form, but they know what that is. So those can often do better than the new show that came to New York that even won a Tony Award. But nobody knows what the title means. In the Heights, great show, beautifully received, beautifully produced. Um, and a little guy named Lynn wrote. Manuel Miranda wrote it, so you know he had. He seemed to know what he was doing. Um, but didn't do as well as some of the other titles had done because there was there was no name recognition. Um, Memphis struggled a little bit in the, in the same way, and and we'll see what happens with Fun Home. These things are not. These are titles that re- require education of the audience. Um, so the presenters have to work a little harder on those. So, and I know I am super thankful that you got
0: a tour of bridges of Madison County. Me out too. This
1: year, okay. So Thanks. I'm going to go back to your to your question. Sometimes when I go in, you ask, you know, do I? How can I tell what's going to make it on the road? Sometimes I actually lose my. It isn't objective at all. It's just about something that I've fallen in love with, and I just. Feel like it needs to be seen, or that it didn't get as full of life as it as it might have gotten here, or that maybe this this time it'll it'll be true that it's a great show for the road and it just wasn't for New York. So Bridges is certainly one that kind of fell into into that category. I mean, it did it did certainly win one best score. It's it, and it was actually critically well received in New York. It just for whatever reason didn't find its home here. But it's out there. It's a beautiful production right now, and it's a little tour. It's 29 weeks. Um, and I'm thankful that Networks was able to figure out a way, because they had the same passion for it that I did. They figured out a way to make it work, and, and it's beautiful, and it's out there, and I'm truly proud of it.
0: Well, as a producer on the Broadway company, I, I am so thankful, because everybody I talk to about it says, Meredith got that thing out. <laughs> Meredith got that out. Uh, Sheer
1: force of will.
0: <laughs> so, thank you. But What about plays?
1: Is there a market on the road for plays anymore? Um there, uh, there hasn't been for, for a while, which has been distressing to me. I, I, you know, there was a while there that I tried to get a play out every year. Um, the, the pinnacle I think of touring plays, at least in my tenure, um, taking um, War Horse out of the equation because that's sort of a, uh, it's not, it, it is a play, of course it is, but but it's sort of a phenomenon in and of itself. But prior to that, um, Twelve Angry Men was the most successful play that I had seen. It was out for two seasons and and did really good business. It was with Richard Thomas, and it was kind of the perfect storm. People were familiar with the title. They liked the star. It was a brilliant production and reasonably priced, and everybody did well with it. So that was kind of the heyday of, of touring plays. And then in subsequent years, other plays went out, and people lost money on them, or they correctly or incorrectly perceived that their Broadway series audiences didn't want to see them, that they only wanted to see musicals, which I'm not sure how true that was. <laughs> um, maybe there wasn't necessarily as much money to be made on a play, but, I mean, you've, you've done a podcast with Jeff Chelswick who makes a mission to do a play, and I know that his subscribers come up and say to him, oh, thank God you still do this. Thank you for bringing that in. I never would have seen this if you hadn't. August Osage County, which is another one, which had a pretty good tour, and... and uh, was also a bit of a phenomenon for its time. Um, that had a thirty-five or thirty-six week tour. That did that did fairly well. Um, maybe without naming names, there have been plays since then that didn't do as well. The people did lose money on, and I think people just lost their nerve to do it. Now the good news is, "Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime" is going out. We open in October, um, which probably has next to Warhorse, the second longest tour book for a play. We're at 52 weeks already, and from what I understand, the the reactions to the season announcements when they announce that Curious Incident is coming, it's gotten a huge response, which is great, really, really encouraging that uh, the public is ready for that again. And do you credit that uh,
0: knowledge of the book, or is the audience just... Is More it savvy because, about what's happening in yeah, New York? is it because of the internet quote-unquote are we finding they're just more in touch with what's
1: happening here than maybe so yeah it might have to do with social media Uh, you know it it, that show got such uh, such an amazing it's the experience of seeing that show you can't stop talking about it so i just think that the word of mouth the reviews it got the tony award the 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 book certainly people are familiar with the book um it's just an an amazing uh, once in a lifetime theatrical experience and i think that that word has gotten out so this is a very big country with lots of different cultures and
0: different accents and all sorts of different types of people. Do you believe, and you have to sit in the middle of the producers and the presenter I know when I produce tours... I always get the presenters coming to me and like, Ken, we want to talk about this marketing because this isn't going to work in our market. Our people are different. Mm. Do you find that marketing should change, has to change when it reaches certain areas of the country?
1: Yes, sometimes. I think that producers certainly need to be open to that. I mean, oftentimes a producer will become very entrenched um, and very precious about their artwork or or their marketing campaigns. And some shows, by the way, have to be that way. And I mean like I wouldn't mess with the formula of the book of mormon why would you it's not broken <laughs> don't fix it it's it's worked it's always worked and it continues to work so um but there are other campaigns where you have to listen to the local presenter you really do um sometimes they're not necessarily always right but if but if there if there's some perception that their audience is not going to receive or get or appreciate what you're putting out there marketing wise why not be flexible and 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 work with them on it? They're at most of the times at risk. So, um, yeah, I think that there can be some marketing campaigns that, that that stick more in some markets than in others.
0: You mentioned early that uh, you have a non union division. Mm-hmm. What is the place for non union tours in in the market? Has it grown? Has it decreased? There's been lots of this controversy, mm-hmm. certainly on the union front about it, but. How necessary are non-union tours to the health of the road? Uh, well, um, how big of a market is is it? You know, many of us may not even know how large it's, it is.
1: It's pretty, it's pretty big. I mean, I have a staff of five people that, that, that work just in the non-equity department alone, mostly because it's much more time, uh, labor intensive, and, and takes much more time. Instead of doing, you know, one city a week or every two weeks, you can be doing four to five cities a week. That's a lot of bookings. Um it's much more intricate and frankly much harder than what than, than what I do um, if it, I look at it as sort of the natural evolution of things if you're looking at the 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 full life of a title um, a show will go out and take a Cinderella for instance um, which has had a hugely successful equity tour it's played almost all of the equity markets done phenomenally well in all of them um, and that's a two-year tour um, and then the natural evolution is after that it will go to non-equity, where it can play the tertiary markets, and it can play it's 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 the it's physically um, lighter on its feet and able to load in uh, more quickly than the current equity tour. So it's able to play the little Harlington, Texas, and and uh, and play more markets than the other tour physically could have done. Um, so that will and whereas if we just stayed equity, that tour, maybe we would might have gotten out another half a year or something. um, but it wouldn't have given us time,, um, even though it was very successful for a successful return. and so if we'd only been out for two years, if we'd come back two years later, it's too soon for a repeat. However, you've got the non-equity tour going out, and suddenly you've got three more two or three more years of touring five years later, it is time to go back to Hartford or Milwaukee or, or whoever had a great successful date on the on the equity tour. So it kind of gives you that chance to, to extend the life of it and to come back to places and not come back too soon. But it also allows us to play the smaller markets that physically and financially can't handle the bigger tours. Wow, I never actually thought about it
0: as a way to loop back mm-hmm. because I've always thought, yes, yeah, this natural evolution you described it perfectly and how shows trickle down successfully – um, but then to get a chance to go back as a result, that mm-hmm. that's, can be very lucrative for mm-hmm. all the parties, including those New York investors, which is what our Broadway producers are always uh, concerned about. What's the timeline for booking a show these days Oof. in terms of a show opens on Broadway this spring, 2016. When does that show and is successful? We won't call it a massive hit. We won't call it a it's
1: successful. Mm-hmm. When does that tour go out? If a tour opens in the fall of 16, spring of 16, spring right of now. 16, uh, well, <laughs> normally it, I would have said 17, 18, but we're in a very odd cycle right now. Um, uh, and it's a big topic of conversation. Um, because we are, it is what it's, uh, the end of March, right? Um, the 17, 18 season, and by the way, the current season hasn't finished uh, opening yet. <laughs> 17-18 touring season is almost put to bed which is crazy early um, and it's I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to set the standard for the way things go going forward it's just an odd set of circumstances that led us here um, which is that we've had two enormously successful seasons in New York like knock on wood for all of us you know it's a, it's a great thing so there's lots of shows that um, are Gleefully looking looking into their second year, which would be the seventeen eighteen season. American in Paris, something rotten, uh, fun home. Uh, that um, there's all these shows that are uh, that are uh, still have to complete their quote unquote two to three year run. So they have to play off the rest of of their bookings in seventeen eighteen. So those get in theory get booked first. Um, and then you've got this this new slate of shows that open this fall. And mostly shows don't open in the fall. They mostly open in the spring. This is an unusual season as well where so many shows open in the fall. Maybe it's a reaction to Hamilton. I don't know. But um, but that many shows open in the fall. And that many shows open to great reviews. So to have two seasons where sh- where so many shows were so successful and have opened to such critical acclaim, it's almost like the presenters didn't have to wait and see what happened in the spring, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it's, it's kind of it puts the shows that are opening this spring in particular to a disadvantage because now they're late to the ball um, through no fault of their own. That's just the way things happen to be. And so so many of those slots are, are already taken by the shows that opened the season before or by the shows that have already opened in the fall that people already know that they want. whether they, whether it wins the Tony Award or, or not, not that's not what they're waiting for this season. They're not waiting to see if on your feet wins the Tony Award. They've seen it, they know their audiences like it. Give me a date. And who am I to say no? <laughs> You'll give them two, whether they like it or not.
0: So we've all heard about how well Broadway is doing lately. Grosses are way mm-hmm. up. Attendance is very good. Sometimes it slips a little bit, but it's overall good. Is, that, is there a correlation to the business in New York and the business on the road? Is the business on the road
1: as robust? We'll yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Business on the road is really pretty, pretty spectacular right now. It used to be, um, and and shows haven't gotten any cheaper, by the way, or neither have local expenses, let's not go back to that, but um, you know, I remember four or five years ago, it was, I'd say, maybe maybe on the average show, not the blockbusters, um, maybe 20, 25% of the time the show would go into overages. I'm looking at Cabaret, which just opened uh, maybe uh, seven weeks ago. I think six weeks out of seven, we've gone into overages. It's Cabaret. It's a beautiful production of Cabaret, by the way, but... I'm not sure that that would have that would have happened five years ago. So more often than not, shows are are, are hitting those overages, um, and that a lot I think has to do with is a function of dynamic pricing as well. These grosses are growing up. Um, somebody should really I'm sure somebody already has do the analysis of whether the attendance has or not, but the grosses are certainly higher, um, and I think the attendance is up as well. I mean I know subs- um, the subscription bases are up substantially um, from where they were five years ago. Um, so yeah, the road's very healthy right now.
0: We talked a a bit about things that have changed and things that haven't changed. Generally speaking, have the deals changed? Are we still seeing the traditional guarantee model with a piece of overage or a four wall what are you seeing or or, are people going let's try something different and unique or generally you're seeing this straight
1: there's really three structures there's the guarantee which is the majority of the shows go out on a guarantee a a guarantee with a quote unquote royalty it's really a variable guarantee um reimbursement for local musicians if you're a a musical um and a, a split that's determined frankly by how hot the show is a back end split um then there's the terms deal which is a shared risk deal um uh, which more of the uh, the Book of Mormon and Wicked and, and the, the quote-unquote most of the blockbusters go out, generally speaking, on that sort of a deal. Um, uh, and, and then there's the, the four-wall, which I think Disney tends to favor, I think, you know, with things like Lion King, um, where the presenter has no risk, but the producer takes the, the lion's share of, of the profit. Um so those are the three standard deal scenarios, but there's variations on that theme. You know, the guarantees can be higher or lower. The back end split is higher or lower. On a terms deal, it, it, um, terms deal is probably where there's the most variance because a terms deal can mean any number of things. It's either just advertising off the top, or it's advertising and musicians off the top, or it's advertising and labor off the top, and then the split can be, you know, any it can it can be a staggered split on the back end. So that's probably where the biggest um, variance is is in terms of the deal structure. And then a four-wall is basically the, 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 theater, the show goes in and rents the building and cuts the presenter in in some way for letting them into their building and putting them on their subscription or helping them present their date. So Average guarantee for a big Broadway show these days? These days? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's another big topic of discussion because it hasn't gone up exponentially. Um, in, if you look back, or if I look back, and I have, to 10 years ago, the guarantees now are just creeping back up to what they were 10 years ago, which is kind of remarkable because I guarantee the expenses have gone up a lot more than that. Um, There was a time, again, going back about five or six years ago, where there wasn't a lot of great product coming out of New York. Uh, The economy was off. Uh, Presenters were getting hurt pretty badly, and and, uh, they were becoming more and more risk averse, and there was just kind of a battle cry about how much they were willing to pay shows and there was at that season and maybe the season before and after 275 was like the benchmark which is we can't pay any more than that no matter what the title is um and that's the so producers kind of had to just back into that number and which necessitated sometimes shows having to go non-equity because the presenters just couldn't afford it and weren't going to pay it so you had to figure out a way to get the shows out for that number um the road's gotten healthier since then and, and guarantees have gone up and and now we're i think more often than not above the 300 mark. Uh, so we're probably like mm, a lot of more than the 325 range right now. Um, but again, interestingly enough, if you look back 10 years ago, that's about what they were then too.
0: <laughs> if you had a crystal ball and looked into it to see what the road would look like 20 years from
1: now, will it look the same, different? It would just be bigger. I think it would just simply be bigger again. Same thing that's the change that's happened over the last 20 years.
0: So you see an expansion, more markets, more theaters...
1: Yeah, I do, yeah, more see, more theaters, I'm seeing it now, it's theaters that used to be back-end split markets are going into becoming full-week markets, um, markets that were, Cleveland just went from being a two-week subscription market to a three-week subscription market, um, hugely successful, um, and yeah, I think that there are new theaters being built, and, and there's one being built at, uh, going up in Greensboro that I think is coming online in 1819, so that'll be another market that'll be a full-week market that wasn't previously, so... Yeah, I don't see it shrinking. I see it expanding. So obviously,
0: as the mediator between producers, and presenters, you do a lot of negotiating throughout your days. <laughs> do you have a style of negotiating? Any tips you could give in,
1: for negotiating to the people listening? I don't give away all my secrets. Uh, huh. Well, yeah, I think going back to what you were talking about, about fiduciaries, my fiduciary is, again, to the, to the producer because they're the ones who've hired us and they're the ones who pay us. Um, however, it's also our responsibility um, to be firm with producers. And, and given the fact that we are oftentimes more familiar with the road than, than, than they may be and with the presenters, um, if a presenter has brought forward an argument that's valid and that uh, needs to be heard, it's our job to bring it back to the producers. And even though what the argument may be may not necessarily be what the producer wants, but ultimately it's in the tour or the, or the show's uh, best interest, it's our job to facilitate that and make sure, and kind of take the presenter's point of view back to the producer. Um, you can't just blindly just say whatever the producer says because then you're not really serving them very well. You have to facilitate that relationship. You have to make sure the relationship between them um, the continues because there's you know the, the producers don't have a tour if there's no presenter and vice versa. So it's our job, even though there is that inherent sort of mistrust that we talked about. It's also a really small community. We all know each other, and while there's that little bit of mistrust about the other, we all—I think most of us—genuinely like each other. You know, you go to these these conferences, and people are glad to see each other, and, and they uh, are generally speaking re- respectful. And uh, it's, I think we're all feeling pretty privileged to be part of it, to be part of this whole community. And, and and you tell people that aren't do that don't do what we do. You know, you're sitting on an airplane, or you're sitting in a neighbor's backyard, and you tell them what you do, and, and they go, "Wow." That must be fascinating. And for a minute, you have to go, you know what? Aren't I lucky, you know, to be doing this? And, and your career, actually, it's, it's not always that fascinating. <laughs> Sometimes it really is drudgery, but for the most part, it, it is fascinating, and we are lucky. And you know what? The best part is no two days are alike. I never know coming into my office in the morning what's going to hit me, and that's the part I love the most. It's kind of like living on the edge. If a producer came to
0: you before their show opened in New York and said, Meredith, I really want this thing to tour is there anything I can do right now before my show is even finished rehearsing before it's
1: up something you can tell me to do to make sure it has a long life on the road? Yeah. Make sure you get the presenters involved and interested early on, invite them into the process, invite them to the readings, Um, get them to invest, give them a vested interest in wanting the show to succeed as well. As I was looking over the shows that you're booking and have booked, you've worked with obviously
0: some of the biggest powerhouse producers in the business who also couldn't be more different from one another, Uh from Scott Rudin, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin and Jeffrey, and Uh all these folks. How do you work with these different styles? And is there a type of producer you like to work with? Who's your favorite? No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. But what type of characteristics do you look for when working with a producer? I don't know
1: that I have the luxury of looking for a characteristic. I mean, you know, sometimes people are attached to a certain show whether you know, I have, I have no say in that. Who do I enjoy working with? Um, the people who have a real curiosity about uh, about the road and, and aren't just interested in their show in New York and aren't just interested in, in the road as another source of income, uh, the people that really are genuinely interested in that other life, because that's where, honestly, that's where most of the money is. is on the road. But,, um, so people who are interested in, in the health and the well-being of the road um, and have a genuine curiosity and want to get to know the presenters, rather than just having that be somebody out there in, in Des Moines who writes them a check. Who wants to know who they are? Um, I, I find that to be something that's makes my job easier and and uh, more pleasurable. All right, last question.
0: This is my genie question. Uh-oh. Okay, I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin, knocks on your office door and says, Meredith, I want to thank you for delivering high quality Broadway entertainment to all these audiences all over the country and grant you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that gets you mad, that keeps you up at night, that can have you slamming the phone down? The one thing that drives you so nuts you'd ask this genie to
1: change with the rub
0: of his lamp?
1: Wow. Um, I'd have to give that one a whole lot more thought to be able to come up with it because uh, I'm not sure. I'll, I can tell you what a pet peeve is, though. People not doing what they said they were going to do. People not honoring a commitment. People uh, who aren't true to their word. Um that I, that I have very little tolerance for happens a lot in the booking business. Of Honestly, saying. not as not as much as 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 one would think. We are a pretty honorable lot. Um, sometimes there's um, selective memory, um, which is which is why I document everything. Um, I have every email anyone's ever written me, and I know exactly where to find it. <laughs> so. Um, uh, yeah, and, I, and a lot of it is just covering my own ass. Quite frankly, is you know I document every conversation, every hold I make is immediately followed up with an email, so that there's no. Uh, we've never held that date later on, and you know by the way, also you have to be um, respectful of the fact, respectful of the fact, especially since we're um, this far out in the process, that when you put a date on hold for seventeen, eighteen, and the rest of the season hasn't opened yet, you have to know that some of those holds are tentative. Because something could open in the next month that could change their mind about something that they booked from the fall. Suddenly they want that one more. And I know that going in. I know that even though I've got all these routes laid out for seventeen, 18, they're all going to change. And that's my problem. That means I have to do my job multiple times. But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I, it, it's the nature of the beast. Um, so when I say people not honoring their word, I'm not saying that somebody that's holding a date for the spring of 18 for a show that hasn't opened yet, that they absolutely have to do it. Um, I'm more talking about things that already exist.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending the time to and for delivering these shows all over uh, the country and the world, actually, because it is true. Broadway is the longest street in America mm-hmm. and a lot of money for the investors in Broadway shows is on the road. So without you, those guys and girls wouldn't see a lot of that money back. So thank you for that thank all of you for listening we will see you next time don't forget if you haven't seen daddy longlegs recently nominated for best musical best book best score in the outer critics noms go check it out now and if you email me i may even give you a really good deal i to be
1: a producer. look out